0: Salam and hello everyone, my name is Lily Bukala Piper and welcome to the show. So in today's episode that I am filming the intro from Nairobi, I'm going to take you on a little trip to one of the most beautiful places in Kenya. Lamu, Kenya is a coastal city that is absolutely stunning in natural beauty and rich in cultural history. And in September, a group of about 60 curious, creative people gathered there to think deeply about Africa's creative economy. I was one of those 60 participants and I got to hear from incredible playwrights, musicians, writers, curators, cultural shifters. And the keynote address for that event was the one and only Titsi Dengrenbois. Titsi is one of the most important voices in African literature of the 21st century. Her work span over three decades. She has authored several novels, and she has written and produced over two dozen films. She's also a screenwriter. She is a creative leader. And when we were gathered in Lamu at the Little Gig Festival, Titsi opened up our three days of creative celebration with very wise and sober words of how we can engage more deeply in Africa's imagination. I want to share with you a little bit about Titsi's remarkable contributions. Titsi is the author of a trilogy of books that have captured our imagination and the continent and beyond. Our first book, Nervous Conditions, or the first part of this trilogy, came out in 1998 and was the first book to be published in English by a Black woman from Zimbabwe. Just think about that, 1988 is not that long ago. I was 12, and Titsi broke the glass ceiling in Africa with her incredible work. Her protagonist in that book, Tambudzai, continued on a path for two more novels. She continued her work in the book, um, The Book of Not, which came out a few years later. And then the final chapter of the trilogy, the final book, This Mournable Body came out in 2018. A few years later, it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, one of six novels worldwide in English that were shortlisted for that honor. Titsy is a voice that we need, that we trust, that inspires and challenges us. And in fact, I want to read to you the inscription that she wrote in the book when I asked her to sign it and what a challenge she left me. She said, Lily, may your breathing in and out be as long as your art remains. Whew. to see you left our hearts and our minds on fire. And listeners, I know you're going to love hearing this episode. It was recorded live in Lamu. So that's why you're getting a bit of my home studio behind you. We weren't able to use the video from that episode uh, or from that interview because of the tremendous wind on that day, but the audio is really beautiful. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you're going to get to see some still images from that incredible conversation. But either way, let me just stop talking and get right to this profound conversation one of our, with one of Africa's most important voices, the one, the only Zimbabwean writer, thinker, filmmaker, novelist, and award-winning author, Titsi Dengrenboa.
1: If the world continues on its present trajectory, we are not going to have a very pleasant future. Mm and inequality is part of the whole complex of issues that are presenting themselves in this late capitalist moment and so i really think that the products of the african imaginary authentic ones are not just not ones that are just reproductions of what has been mirrored to us but authentic ones are really necessary as part of that project of restoring better balance
2: And now for one of the great, great highlights on the program. Well, Fadili was pretty great too. There are many highlights, but really, this is one of the greatest. A huge welcome to Tsitsi Dangaremga. (laughs) Tsitsi is one of Africa's key literary voices. She's been writing for over three decades. In 2021, her novel, This Mournable Body, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, for those of you who know, there only are three uh, three or four books that get shortlisted for the Booker Prize. I think it's four or six, still amazing in the world, right? Um, and that, that award um, is something that she's described as absolutely immense and life-changing. The next year, she was named by Time magazine as one of the 20 most influential women in the world. That year, she had been arrested for participating in a demonstration in Harare against corruption in the ZANU-PF. She was accused of inciting public violence for walking with a placard which read, We want better, reform our institutions. One of the things closest to Tsitsi's heart is Africa's creative economy. She has said before that no significant human advancement has ever taken place without tapping human creative potential. Titsi will, for the next 30 minutes, be in conversation with Lily Bekele-Piper.
0: Clap, clap, clap.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Lily is one of the many people here whose little gig interview quickly became something deep and rewarding, hopefully for both of us. Lily is an Ethiopian-American Kenyan with an education degree from Harvard and a very good podcast called Salam and Hello which shares stories of joy and justice from Africa and the diaspora. She's a speaker, a guest on radio, TV and digital platforms, and a facilitator in the creative and developmental sectors. Thank you both for joining us. This wonderful tropical stage is yours.
0: Hamjambo. <laughs> <clears throat> Titsi. Karibu tena. So wonderful to have you back in Kenya. Asante sana. So let's start at the beginning, beginning of your story. You're from a family of history makers. Your mother, Susan, was the first black woman in Zimbabwe to get a Bachelor of Arts. She went on to be Zimbabwe's first public service commissioner. You are the first black woman in Zimbabwe to publish a book in English. What of Susan do we find in Titsi?
1: Um, while I consider how to answer that question, let me say good morning to everybody. <laughs> and thank you for being here. And thank you to the inimitable Georgia for organizing this. And thank you to our hosts today. And um, I really hope Georgia that you will feel that this conversation today really does make sense of something. But I think you are being too kind to me. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, my mother, my mother was an incredible person. She passed away in 2017. She used to say to me, Sissy, I have made my way in life using my brain. So this led me to think that there is something that I have as a woman that I can use to make my way in life. And it also led me to think that I am able to make my way in life and that I am allowed to make my way in life. Of course, I came up against many other people who wanted to inform me otherwise that actually you're not allowed to make your way in life and you're not allowed to use your brain (laughs) to make your way in life. But that is something that I definitely learned from my mother. Um, My mother was a remarkable woman. She actually changed the whole of the so-called Bantu education system in southern Rhodesia because at the time when she was doing her O-levels, the truth that was widely held was that black people were not able to learn the same academic subjects as white people were in Rhodesia. And then my mother went to one of the few schools where black people were allowed to write these O-levels and she got the best results in the country. Wow. <laughs> so that changed the whole colonial thinking on that.
0: Sounds like there's much of Susan and Titsy. Maybe she's the S in that name of yours. Um, Two of them. Two of them. Two S's. (laughs) Double her and one of you. So let's talk about some of that life-changing work that sets you on the path to be the exemplary and unforgettable novelist and writer, film uh, director, screenwriter that you are. You have a trilogy of novels that are here before us, Nervous Condition from 1988, The Book of Not, 2006, and This Mournable Body, 2018. I hope many of you have read her incredible work. Those books take us through 30 years of Zimbabwe's story. When we start and we meet our protagonist, uh, Tambutsai, she is a young child. By the time we get to This Mournable Body, she is in the vocational sector trying to find her path. Is Tambudzai a metaphor for Zimbabwe? And if she is, what do you want us to learn from her story? And what should we learn about ourselves?
1: Yeah, well, I didn't really construct Tambudzai as a metaphor for Zimbabwe. I constructed her as a young Zimbabwean girl. And I, was, I wrote Nervous Conditions in the early 1980s, and this was just after in Zimbabwe's independence. I wanted to write a story that inspired young black Zimbabwean girls to think in the way that I thought, as my mother had taught me, that yes, I can build a life for myself. I can construct something worthwhile for myself. And this really was my aim. So I wasn't looking at the country as such. But when I finished Nervous Conditions, I realized that the story had not ended and I had to think about how to end this story, which wasn't easy because Nervous Conditions ends on the eve of the Zimbabwe liberation struggle. And that was still a contentious thing to write about in the 1980s and 1990s. So I had to find a way into that, which became the Book of Not. And so by engaging with the liberation struggle, which really was so formative for Zimbabweans, Um, nobody who lived through that liberation struggle emerged from it unscathed in some way. And I refer to this in this mournable body, which is set after the liberation struggle. But people keep on referring back to it and how it wrecked everybody's nerves. And I think that just Mm. basically explains Zimbabwe today. We're a bunch of nervous wrecks. We haven't (laughs) really come together again after the trauma of that struggle. So because of the nature of the society that Tambutsai lived in, where she could not help but be scathed by the events that were going on at societal level. Her story does intersect with that of the, of the country.
0: We're going to talk a bit more about how that trauma shows up in our current societies and some of your work to address that through some of your other enterprises in a moment. But just to continue on with your your work, you talk about how this mournable body, which is such a beautiful story about the dignity and the worth of every single person. At least that's what I took from it. Um, and that book was shortlisted for the Booker, as Georgia said. How did that recognition of your work change your life or impact your work? How or how is it currently?
1: Well, Lily, I'm really glad that that's what you took away from this mournable body because that's what I had hoped that people would (laughs) take away from it. And in fact, I pointed people to it and said, please take this away from it (laughs) in the acknowledgements, which are at the end of the book, Um, because the title of this mournable body is from Teju Cole's 2015 essay, Unmournable Bodies or something of that nature. And uh, he wrote that on the eve of the massacre of the um, students here in Kenya. And he compared the international reaction to that massacre to what had happened with the Charlie Hebdo massacre. And everybody knows about the huge outpouring of grief that followed the Charlie Hebdo massacre, whereas I think there was very little international outpouring of grief at the massacre of the students here in Kenya, I think it was in northern Kenya. In Gorisa. In Gorissa, that's correct. Um, I remember being somewhere among some students and being told that I think students in in Slovenia or somewhere like that had staged a die-in. But that was the only international commemoration that I heard of. And so his essay was about which bodies do we deem worthy of being mourned and which bodies do we think do not need to be mourned? And so exactly, I I paint a picture of a woman who is a tragic character. She is not sympathetic, she is not likable, um, she is broken, but behind all that, I am saying that this person is still a person who has been formed by the circumstances around them, not that she is not complicit in that, yes of course she is because she has some agency of her own, but there are two sets of forces acting here. You have the individual agency and you have the societal pressures. So what happens? Often when the societal pressures are so great that a person feels one cannot push back and retain any kind of dignity without entering into undignified behaviors, then one gets that kind of person that I constructed who, who is as she enters middle age. But I wanted to say that this is still a body that contains a soul, a human soul, that deserves to be treated with the dignity that we would treat any other body and mourn for them when they behave like that, rather than perhaps look down on them and think, well, what do you expect of people like that? So I'm really happy that you say that. And now please will you remind me about the second part of your question.
0: (laughs) So the second part of the question is rightfully so. This book was lauded by the Booker Prize, which of course selects the best English novel written in English that year. Um, It's an extraordinary acknowledgement of your extraordinary work and story. So the question was, how has that recognition impacted your work?
1: Okay, so I'm going to meander again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think one one might want to understand the process towards having this mournable body published, even though I had two other books published before. Um, It wasn't easy. And I had despaired. I thought it would never be published. So I think around 2014, I began to publish extracts on Facebook. I was still on Facebook at that time. And this amazing person called called Ella Wakatama read it on Facebook, and she inboxed me. And she said, Tsitsi, when you are ready, please send me your text, and I will help you. Because no one had wanted to read it. So, encouraged by that, around 2015, I sent her the text, and she was busy, and it was pro bono work, so she didn't have time to read it immediately, so I thought, okay, you know, I really appreciate the gesture, but probably nothing is going to come of this. Um, As the name suggests, Ella is from the continent, she's Zimbabwean, but Zimbabwean-American-British. So then about a year later, she got back to me and said, well, Sissy, I've read your novel and I like it, but we have to do one more edit before we send it out. So I said, "Okay, let's do that. So she did that pro bono for me, and that took a while. And then when it was ready, she said, I think we're there and I can find a publisher for you. So without Ella, who was this international person, Zimbabwean, American, British... I probably would not have published Mm. this mournable body because she understood what I wanted to say as a Zimbabwean person talking about a Zimbabwean character and how this had a universal message, if you like, or appeal in it. And she was able to help me to get there. Now, most people have editors all the time, but they are working within their culture, within their context. So I needed somebody who could translate not so much the language, because I wrote in English, but the psychological world that I was bringing. Mm. And that's what um, Ella did for me. So this is why the Booker Prize meant so much for me. Mm. Um, With the story of Tambudzai as a young girl, I mean, she's cute. Everybody loves children, especially spunky children who really want to go out and change the world. So I think, That was understandable, although there's a similar story. The person at the woman's press who picked up this, uh, who picked up Nervous Conditions was uh, a South African in exile, the late Ros de So again, something similar there. But I really feel that without Ella having been there to bring this book to the world, it would never have been appreciated. So it was a very special moment for me because I had someone to help me have my voice appreciated. And it was the conclusion of the trilogy. Mm. And I think people then began to appreciate the amount of work I had put into documenting this fictional character's life. Mm. And um, yeah, they say nothing succeeds like success, right? (laughs) (laughs) So things opened up after that.
0: Thank you for that. It it helps us to, I think, appreciate the labor of love that you have invested in your work over these many years and and hints to what you have also put a lot of your life and effort into, which is talking about Africa's creative economy and how critical that will be and is for not only our development, but our futures. I want to read you a a quote that you said um, when someone asked you about this. You said the creative economy is one of the key strategies for Africa's sustainable development. Tell us what you meant by that.
1: The creative economy is, on the one hand, an economy. So that means we produce products that have a commercial value. So you are going to just be participating in the nation's economy. The African creative economy is unique in that it produces products that only Africans can produce. That psychological world, that symbolic world, that experiential world that we have is unique to us. And so we are the only people who can produce those products, whatever they may be, whether it's fashion, whether it's films, music, literature, you name it. And the world is looking to hear what other people are saying. I don't think that people consciously feel that I want to hear something from another part of the world, but there is this yearning that we have for knowing the other. Mm -hmm. And the ways in which Africa has been known as the other have not been ways in which Africa has told its own story up until now. So we have a whole universe of experience and being that we can mold into these products Mm. that people then understand, oh, this is another Africa to the one that we have been told Mm. exists. And I think this is what, Uh, nervous conditions did Mm -hmm. and for me it's always something I smile about I think about this girl who's from a rural village a very poor one one of the poorest in the village and then she can't go to school because her brother has to go to school so she's female on top of it and yet she stands there and says yes I'm somebody and I want you to know my story so I feel if that kind of character can do it, we all have stories like that to tell about Africa and the world actually wants to hear them because we participate as beings at a global level, which is why stories from Hollywood just flood the world because everybody wants to know about what the other is doing and living. You have good stories from, um, from India. Again, I mean, on this continent, we've watched so much Bollywood, haven't we? A lot of us have watched a lot of Bollywood. So we need to participate in that. It's a conversation Mm. and it has a commercial value. And so I think that is why it is key for Africa to really make its presence felt in the creative economy.
0: I want to continue to, to talk about that a little bit. I recognize that we're in the presence of many people who are part of that creative economy here on the continent who are doing such extraordinary work to lift us to entertain, to engage with our stories and our communities. CNN reported recently that the global creative economy is worth about $2 trillion. And of that price point, North America, Asia, the Pacific account for 93% of that revenue stream, with the remaining 3% or so coming from Africa and the Middle East, which is a astoundingly sad statistic. The flip side of that is that we see movements, Afrobeats, the, the continuing growth of Nollywood that indicate that there is, we are our own producers and also our own consumers at times. That article said that content out of the continent is the new crude oil. <laughs> and that term made me feel some kind of way. So I just <laughs> want to put it to you to, to help me make sense of that. How do you see us as Africans retaining our identity and at the same time wanting to participate in this global marketplace and stay true to who we are to own and drive our own narratives. How can we manage that and not, in my mind, become the new crude oil?
1: Yes, um, I think there is a perspective out in the world that would look at anything from Africa as the new crude whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's the new lithium ore. That is going to be taken out. What was it
0: out of Wakanda? Vibranium. It's like where the vibranium.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. You know that needs to be taken away to be refined because they can't do it themselves on the continent. Um, let's not go into the reasons why we why it is not done on the continent. Their legion. We haven't got time to go into them now. So I think that if we are not careful, we will see that this is what happens. Um, that our creative imaginary becomes the the raw material for somebody else's industry. Uh, We see a lot of practitioners have, in fact, left the continent and they are practicing offshore. My own work is not owned by Zimbabwean publishing houses. It's owned by British and American publishing houses and German publishing houses. And so... um, We have to find a way to make sure that we bring the production onto the continent. And that is very difficult for a number of reasons. First of all, we are not socialized in that way. African imaginary and the products were discouraged from the time of the engagement of Africa with the West about half a millennium ago. We know the stories about how people who were enslaved were broken up into groupings where they were unfamiliar with each other so that they could not talk to each other, so that they could not pass on the stories, so that they could not retain their language. And so they had to learn the language of the enslavers in order to communicate amongst themselves. Just think about that for a moment. You have a group of people who are committed to your enslavement And that means that there would be a language developed that would enable them to carry out this project. And that is the language you are now learning yourself with which to talk to the people in your own community. You know, so when we see the problems, that really come from this lack of identity that you mentioned, or the lack of a viable identity, let me put it like that. The lack of an identity that you can stand up and be proud of. There is a reason for this. It didn't just happen. Africans were not always abject human beings. Africans were made into abject human beings by a a project that needed their labor Mm -hmm. half a million years Mm -hmm. ago. And so what has been needed has changed. After the labor which had to be exported, uh, it was the land that was necessary. So we had colonization. This is one one of the things I talk about in the essays, black and female. And now it's the imaginary. (laughs) So if we are not careful, We are on the same course. So it is absolutely imperative that we understand the importance of resourcing production from our own imaginary. And this is going to be really difficult because we have people who wage the anti-enslavement struggle. We have people who wage the anti-colonial struggle and they feel a sense of ownership and they know that the power of the imaginary is immense because most of them use it in their own liberation struggles, you know, the war songs and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So we, in fact, are up against ourselves also in this case. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're in a situation where most of us somewhere are fighting against this image of the enslavable person, of the abject person, the person who can be killed manifold in Garissa and not mourned. Mm. We are struggling. We have that little person, a mini person there somewhere. So it's a constant fight. And this is what Franz Fanon talked about. Uh, he wrote about and called negrophobia. There's this wonderful passage, and I, I think it's in Black Skin, White Mask, where he says, I'm in the cinema and the Negro is about to appear on the screen. (laughs) And I am immensely uncomfortable. Because at that time, the 1960s or perhaps earlier, who would have been projecting this person called the Negro onto the screen? It certainly wouldn't have been the person who is seen as the Negro oneself. And then this person who is called the Negro is seeing this projection. And we'll think, okay, that's the way I have to project myself. And then there's the reciprocal reaction where you think, okay, so that's partly who I am. This is who we have to fight against. And we can only do that on our own terms. And so we have to find a way for resourcing money from African people who understand the need for this production to take place. It's a contribution to the world because if the world continues on its present trajectory, we are not going to have a very pleasant future. Mm. And inequality is part of the whole complex of issues that are presenting themselves in this late capitalist moment. Mm. And so I really think that the products of the African imaginary, authentic ones, are not not ones that are just reproductions of what has been mirrored to us, Mm. but authentic ones are really necessary as part of that project of restoring better balance. Mm.
0: Thank you for that, Titsi. Yeah, extraordinary. And I want to appreciate that you have pushed against those forces to embrace, protect, and um, promote the African imaginary through your extensive films that you have written, produced, your playwriting, your library is immense. Um, many of us may know her from her books, but her films are, you know, in the dozens. And I'm curious when you're thinking about that African imaginary and being authentic, what does film and film writing, screenwriting provide you that prose does not?
1: First of all, uh, film is so much more accessible. That's one reason why I decided that I would do both. I think that prose has its own advantages in terms of the detail and the extent to which one can construct worlds. One is limited in film because you go to 120 minutes, you're pushing it already. (laughs) People (laughs) start to get restless. But it does constructing a world in a more immediate manner and without the mediation of the written word. Mm. There is a film language, but it's a visual language, so it's more accessible to people. So that was something that was really important to me. And it is important to me to counteract some of the narratives that we see out there. You know, when Black Panther came out, I said, I'm not going to watch that (laughs) because I will be upset for months. (laughs) (laughs) And so my children said, no, mum." come and watch it with the whole family's going to this so I had to go and had to watch my son's dress up or whatever they did. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I went and I thought my goodness I don't know whether to be happy about this or not. It was not overtly offensive but if you are going to be like me and start actually analyzing what you see You actually realize what is going on. And so this is what I want to push back against. Now, there is a reason why it is so difficult for authentic African and African-descended voices to make their films. I mean, even Spike Lee complained about this all throughout his career. And it is because people know the power of film. Film presents the image, and the image is perceived by the primitive brain before your cortex actually kicks into analyzing what you're seeing. So you have seen that and you're reacting to it, and that is what stays with you. And um, film was actually developed in the colonies as a means of propaganda. Just around the time of the Second World War when the colonies were becoming less ready to remain silent colonies, let's put it that way, um, colonizers really realized that they needed a tool that would really enable them to consolidate their work of the subversion of certain kinds of humanity. And film was the, the tool of choice because of this way that it impacts the individual. And you need one film that you can take around to many people. I don't know how many people in this audience are old enough or were in a situation to have the experience of having those those um, mobile cinemas by scope in a van camera. <laughs> I see some smiling faces, <laughs> you know, so you could reach the people with this amazing thing, this amazing story. So um, right from its inception, I mean, Griffith, Birth of a Nation, what was it, 2015? Yes. Something around, yeah, yeah, so early. And in fact, there was huge collaboration between the nascent Hollywood and South Africa. South African film industry, which only ended in the 1960s when it became embarrassing for Hollywood to be known to be collaborating, and that's how some of these um, uh, cinema chains like Sir Kinnacle came into being. Mm. And you will find that they still have very strong ties to Hollywood, which is why we have that kind of content and the advertising is limited, et cetera, et cetera. So, So film, because... It is a medium that was discovered 1896, 1897 in Europe. It coincided with the heyday of colonization, so it was subverted. And then all through through the World Wars, etc. cetera, and when the colonies needed to be subdued, it was used. So it's a mammoth task uh, to work against it. But I feel that unless we take that on, we are not going to achieve our aim. And I would like to distinguish between film and television. Both are moving images narratives, but television does not have that same impact because it is not made with that intention of representing reality, which is actually the intention of film. So there are different ways in which it is crafted to achieve those different ends.
0: I feel like every time she speaks, I want to applaud. Um, <laughs> but we don't have time. <laughs> so we'll try and keep really Thank you for that, Titi. You, you have not been satisfied, though, to just write or just create films. You also are the founder of the Institute for Creative Arts for Progress in Africa Trust. Why was that organization necessary? And what is its contribution to this creative economy that you are so beholden to?
1: Yes, well... I created the Institute for Creative, Institute of Creative Arts of Progress in Africa Trust because I realized that we did not have the skills for the kind of production at the level that we need to produce at in Zimbabwe if we are going to have the impact that we want. There is one sector in Zimbabwe which I think most people here probably have heard of and that is stone sculpture. Now, the way stone sculpture developed was that... Um, Some philanthropic British people who lived in southern Rhodesia as it was at the time realized that there was a talent for stone sculpture and they nurtured it. So we had institutions like uh, the British American Tobacco Workshop where a lot of the artists were nurtured and that also then spilled over into the other visual arts, but it ended there. It didn't really extend to the other arts and definitely not to the narrative arts. The narrative arts were formed by the literature bureaus, which were had a similar function to the film units. It was to produce the kind of material that would really just put pe- people's minds and critical capacities to sleep. So in Zimbabwe, we had a lot of tales about moving to the city and how terrible that was. We had tales about witchcraft so that we were always afraid of being bewitched by each other. Uh, we had tales about priests who went on to, ha- to impregnate women, you know, so again, our morals were at question, you are this kind of person who behaves like this. So that was the kind of narrative that the Literature Bureau fostered at the time. And so we have never really had a movement to foster narrative. After independence, there was a time when there was a real surge of Zimbabwean literature. And this was because of the education system that remained intact for about a decade. And so it seemed as though people did not really need to have dedicated narrative um, learning situations. But then the education changed and there was a political impulse to this. The people who had been educated began to question the system. So it was useful for the system to no longer educate the people well. So that began to change. And so now we see that Zimbabwean writing has shifted from inside the country to the diaspora. Um, you're Yono Vaila Bulawayo, twice nominated for the Booker Prize. Um, chuma, people like that so I realized that well I tend to take things upon myself and it's a bad habit which I have to stop <laughs> but I thought then you know I've got the skills so I will start this institute that can help people to learn narrative skills so that's what I've been doing focusing on young women But we have a a one-third rule where we have one-third of men who can participate in our teaching situations, our workshops and so forth. And this is because I always think that the women will have to work in an environment that includes men, right? After we have trained them, so they need to learn how to do that. We have had some successes Um, One of our successes is an anthology of short stories that's published in Zimbabwe, will be published in Germany. Um, One of the women who went through our institution is now the head of graduate studies um, in graphic design at Yale University. So we've had, it's also a confidence boosting thing, you know, where young women come And we say, we will listen to your story, we think it's important, we'll help you to articulate it as well as you can. So some people don't even need that help for the actual craft, but they need the confidence, they need the space to find out what what they want to do Mm -hmm. and and to be validated Mm -hmm. in that desire. So that's what we do. The next thing up is a workshop in Lagos <laughs> um, during AFRIF, which is the biggest English Anglophone festival on the continent film festival. And it's something I've been working to slowly so that I can begin to have ties with the Nigerian film industry.
0: Fantastic. Another habit you have is being an advocate for your people and to speak up against the powers that be. And, as Georgia mentioned, you were met, you were arrested in twenty twenty for allegedly inciting violence by that very dynamic placard she was walking around with. <laughs> you should Google it and see how peaceful indeed it was. Your effort and yet so so precise. Earlier this year, the case was overturned. Um, so thankfully, we have Titsi with us today because of that ruling. But I, I would love to know, you know, as it's your love for Zimbabwe and the continent is deep, you have labored for this place for this land. What does it feel like to come to a moment where the very place you have labored for now seeks to silence you?
1: Okay, Lily, um, I really appreciate that question, thank you. Um, There's several aspects to it. One of them is that there is the state, and then we can think about what the Zimbabwean state actually is. is it is it, in fact, the state that administers to a nation? In fact, no, it's not. It is a a former liberation army with a political wing Mm. that became or got into the position of government. Thank you for that. I I really appreciate because I could have said a former liberation party with an army, Mm. (laughs) but actually it is a former liberation army with a political wing. Mm. And so once one understands that, everything falls into place and Somewhere along the line, I did understand that. And I realized that one cannot conflate that with the nation in any way. Mm-hmm. And so it became one of my missions was to engage with nation, which is the citizens, the people who are born into, into this community of people. Um, and so citizen agency is really one of the things that I would seek to engender with my narrative. Mm-hmm. I I want to write narrative that enables Zimbabweans to think about themselves, who they are, why they are that, whether they are satisfied with what they have, which for me is one of the roles of Thambutai in this mournable body. She is not satisfied. There is no point where she says, okay, I'm down in the gutter and I'm just going to just wallow here and see what I can do. She's always striving to come up. And I think that's really important for us to know that we are allowed to have aspirations. If you look at a lot of the films that are funded from outside the country, and often it's donor money, um, you will find that they are not aspirational. They are development-oriented where a character is taken to represent a social problem. And I know because I've made them myself. I had told myself I would not make them, but then... I did, sorry, (laughs) yeah. So uh, it is very difficult for a person from the continent to make an aspirational film. And I think this is one reason why Nollywood is so popular because the people there want things. We may not agree with what they want. You know, they may want a Mercedes or they may want to steal their son's manhood to share with the other witches in their coven.
0: <laughs> There's always a witch. Always a good, solid witch.
1: <laughs> you know, but they are about people who are melanated like ourselves wanting things. And I think that's really important that we know that we are allowed to want things.
0: Mm. And in this case, you wanted more for your people. Yes. (laughs) I love this front row. I love the back row too, but the front row is giving us this energy. Uh, Let's keep talking about that because your actions, your advocacy, this wanting more has also been recognized. Um, And I think something that's really worth knowing about Tutsi is her generosity of spirit in the practical ways. So you were awarded in 2021, the Pen Pinter Prize. But she wasn't satisfied to just win it. She shared it with another writer and activist, the Ugandan writer Rukira Rukirabashiya Isha. But he, at the time, was being persecuted for his writing, had been captured, or was being tortured. And because you shared the prize with him, it brought international attention to his work. And he said himself, it probably saved his life. Mm-hmm. Um, that, to me, is extraordinary. Yeah. Uh,
1: sorry, I'm going to have to disappoint you on this one. <laughs> The structure of that prize is that they then give you three people that you can award the Writer of Courage Award to. So they gave me three people and one of them was, yes, Yes. this Ugandan writer, (laughs) Rukleba Shaysha. Yeah, Yeah, and uh, I think the other two people were women from the East Mm, mm. and their stories were also really compelling. Mm. And... It was a difficult decision for me, especially because of my stance on feminism, but I do believe that as a melanated feminist, I have a duty of care towards people who are close to me as well. And I also understand the similarities between the government in Zimbabwe and the government in Uganda and (laughs) the brutalities. And so I really did feel that possibly this award would be more useful in Rukira Shaisa's case mm-hmm. and maybe lead to more immediate benefits for him. And I'd heard about his story, and it was horrific. He talks about being arrested and being crucified on the stairs overnight, mm-hmm. you know, and feeling like in the morning that he was about to take his last breaths. Mm. Mm. And this is when somebody came to take him down. Mm. And so I, I, I just really felt that with that background that I had, that he was the appropriate person to share that prize with. And yes, he was then able, with that recognition, he was, many people became interested in his plight again and Penn was able to get him out of Uganda.
0: But still, I think it points to your awareness and care for your, your people, and, and thank you for that. I, I want to read to you some of your own words about what writing can do and the potential of this kind of collaborative and, um, yeah, connection. You said that my career has taught me that the work of a writer is doing, and when that circumstances allow, when circumstances allow, that this doing is in fact writing. On the other hand, when circumstances do not allow for the writing process, a writer continues the expression that is no longer possible in literature or that has become inadequate through literature with other actions. I have come to see that the work of writing is not to be seen doing it, but in fact, to do and to keep on doing regardless of circumstances. Only sometimes, if a writer is very fortunate, is that doing seen. So, Titsi, as we kind of come to some of our last few questions and our time together, how important is it for you to your, for your writing to be seen? And by whom do you want it most understood?
1: Oh, very definitely for me. I don't write for myself. I always say I am the first audience, but I am not the only audience. <laughs> I hope to be the first in a great multitude of people who will read my writing. I'm very definite that I speak to people. I write for people on the continent first and foremost, and first and foremost also for women on the continent. Uh, There's so many people who are writing male narratives that I feel that authentic female narratives are necessary. Or maybe I need to qualify that a bit. That was the situation when I began. And that situation has changed. I began writing back in the 1980s. I think I mentioned that. And in the four decades since then, things have changed. And we have so many women from the continent who are writing. But I can remember meeting maybe two or three African women writers who were senior to me. Amaata Aidu, the late. Michere Mugo, the late also and Flora Nwapa, the late, from Nigeria. So those were like three of the women that I could actually sit down and talk to. Uh, And then there was uh, Ngobo, Uh, I forget her first name, from South Africa, wrote two novels about the South African liberation struggle. Um, More recently, I have met other women, older and younger, and so that's been wonderful. But when I began, really, there were so few of us. And so it was important for me to make sure that there were more narratives like these women had written that had spoken to me as a young woman needing those kinds of narratives.
0: Thank you for all that you are. To see, this has been such a joy and an honor and a privilege to talk to you.
2: All time mm-hmm. I don't stop A baby through the sky so, All time